You're listening to The Support Report with Be Present, where we share real stories from young adults and how support changed their lives. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Support Report. We are Be Present. I'm your host, Justin Peters. And of course, joined as always by my co-host, Kiara Riga. Kiara, how are you? I'm not too bad. I literally just got home from treatment like 15 minutes ago. So a uh, <laughs> little all over the place, but all good things. I always love your all over the place. It makes these kind of conversations fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How's, how's treatment been going for you? Um, it's okay. There have been some hiccups, some, um, most recently a nutrient deficiency that has been really fun, but, um, should I finally got a prescription and got that taken care of. So I should start feeling better in a couple months. I'm hoping, um, we'll see. I like to hear. Cool. Um, well, we do got a guest today. Do you want to introduce the guest? Uh, really excited for this conversation. I do. Yeah. I'm super, super excited to have this person on the podcast. So today we are joined by Tatiana Tate. Tatiana served as her mother's primary caregiver who was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. During this time, she learned of the unique challenges many women of color face during their cancer journey. Tatiana founded Chemo Divas Foundation in an effort to address those challenges through education, inspiration, and community support. Tatiana, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Support Report. Hi, thank you guys for having me. It's an honor. Glad to be here. Oh, we're so glad to have you. Do you want to start with a little bit more, uh, dive a little deeper into yourself and Chemo Divas and, and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. So like you stated, um, I founded a nonprofit organization, Chemo Divas Foundation, um, which I actually founded in memory of my mom, Paulette, who was diagnosed with, as you said, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Specifically, it was HTLV1 associated non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a mouthful, I know. Um, but essentially, it was just a very rare form of cancer. Um, and she battled for about 16 months and throughout her experience, again, I was her primary caregiver. So that was the first time we had ever had kind of any personal one-on-one experience with cancer. I know we had people in our family who had had cancer, but my mom was always very healthy. She was a bodybuilder. She did 5Ks, 10Ks. She was actually training for a marathon when she was diagnosed. So she looked like a badass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, she was. I always say she was actually Wonder Woman. Like she was my superhero, and I'm not being dramatic. Um, but yeah, she she was super into health and fitness, and she was a personal trainer. A lot of her friends um, that she met throughout her life were people that she had helped get into shape to become healthy. So when she was diagnosed, it was so unexpected, so kind of out of the blue. Um, she was 48 years old, single mom of, of two. So I was about 26 years old when she was diagnosed. And my younger brother, Elijah, he was 16 years old. Um, so that just kind of turned our world upside down. I was actually living in North Carolina. Um, they were back in Atlanta. So once she was diagnosed, it really went from, you know, me kind of having my own life with my husband in North Carolina, my brother, you know, looking at colleges and playing football and being a 16 year old, just worried about getting his driver's license to suddenly we're her full-time caregivers. Um, We're taking her to her appointments, making sure she has her meds. Um, She actually had to quit her job 
Um, well, she was let go. She was on leave for a while, um, but ultimately they had to let her go. And then ultimately I had to take six months off of work too. Um, so that's something that I think we don't realize as well that I always say cancer is a full-time job, but a lot of the times for the caregiver, it ends up being a full-time job too. So it went from my mom being the sole, you know, financial source in the home to her not working, me not working, you know, it, it just kind of changed so many parts of our lives and so many aspects of our lives that we, we never really thought about and you don't think about until you're put in that situation, um, which is what kind of brought me to realize the need for an organization like Chemo Divas Foundation, um, just because I, I truly and honestly think, you know, cancer affects everyone. Um, but it affects everyone differently. And I know just from my experience, I was able to kind of be a passenger in the journey of my mom, you know, as a woman of color going through treatment, going through this battle and realizing kind of the, the challenges that she faced and what I could do to help her and others who are kind of going through this, a similar situation. And I think that's something that's so important. You know, I mean, listeners know that I am a patient myself. Um, I've done whatever I can to learn about the inequities in care, and it is shocking. I pulled a statistic earlier um, that Black women are twice as likely to die from uterine cancer as white women and 41% more likely to die from breast cancer despite similar or lower incidence rates. Mm -hmm. unacceptable to me. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm sure that's only just scratching the surface. So I'd really love to hear about kind of what, what do you see through your community and through your nonprofit that really affects women of color in the cancer space? Yeah. I mean, what first comes to mind really is just being heard. Honestly, I think there were, well, I know there were plenty of times where I was at an appointment with my mom and I think by the time she was done, she had had like maybe seven or eight different doctors because we'd been to seven or eight different hospitals just because of how rare her cancer was. So I kind of felt like I had a, a good pulse on, you know, doctor interactions, bedside manner, you know, nurse interactions, just kind of how um, different organizations operate. And there were plenty of times where I kind of just felt like the doctors weren't listening to her or they were making assumptions about our situation. My mom actually had to um, participate in a few clinical trials, um, which were all out of state. They were all uh, at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. And again, we were in Atlanta. So when you think about what that entails, we would have to temporarily relocate, find housing out there, you know, spend a few months at a time out in Houston while we're also paying all of our home expenses. Um, Gratefully, we didn't have to pay for treatment out at MD Anderson. The clinical trials were covered. But when we were back in Atlanta, probably six months into my mom's journey, six or seven months, they told her there's there's no more treatment. There's nothing else that can be done. And so we're kind of just like, well, what's next? Do we just sit and wait? Like, what do you mean? It wasn't until actually I had, you know, family friends who were physicians who told us, go to MD Anderson, go, you know, try these other hospitals. And a lot of the times it kind of felt like, was it an assumption that we wouldn't be able to try these other organizations? Or, you know, was it just based off of the fact that you thought that she didn't have the resources available to do whatever it took to live? It just kind of felt like a lot of our conversations with doctors and not all, but some of the physicians, some of the hospitals 
was just kind of like, well, this is the way it goes. You get sick and that's the end of it, as opposed to really looking at her as a person, looking at our family as, you know, we're going to do whatever we can to heal her, to get her across the finish line. So I just kind of felt like a, a sense of visibility, like was lacking and that we were kind of just looked at as a number. We weren't looked at as people, as this person's, you know, aunt or uncle or cousin who was sick. It just kind of was a textbook, you know, example for, for certain people at times. So I think that's a huge one. And that's something I've noticed in a lot of the stories that I received. So many women saying, I told my doctor, you know, this is wrong with me. Or, and I know that's something that's very common in the AYA space as well, because, oh, this person's young, they're fine. They're being dramatic, they're over-exaggerating. Um, and it's just disheartening to hear these women say, I begged for, you know, this test to be run and it didn't get, you know, done until months later. And now, you know, I don't know what could have been. I felt like I wasn't heard. I wasn't seen. People didn't take me seriously. So that I think is just something that hits very close to home because I sat there in those, those appointments with my mom. And I know for me, like people tell me that I look younger than I am a lot of the times. Like, and so I would be in these meetings and they are probably looking like, oh, here's this young girl and her young mom, you know, they don't know what they're doing. You know, we're, we're the doctor, we know best. Whereas, you know, it's like you don't know how much this person has gone through. You don't know what they're actually feeling, what research they've done, you know, and you're just discounting what they have to say because you assume these things about them that you don't know. Yeah. And no option was probably not an option with a competitive athlete like your mom, I'm guessing too, oh, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she, we need to make progress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, she literally would tell doctors like, I have another 50 years to be here. Like whatever you need to do, you need to do it because I'm not going anywhere. And, and that is probably the one thing that I hold on to that no matter what the doctors told my mom throughout that time, like no, you're not going to tell me how my life is going to end. Like my life is mine. You're just, you're a human, just like me. You don't have the final say. And I, I think that a lot of things, there were a lot of lessons that I learned throughout my mom's journey, but that's kind of one of the big ones that I remember that, you know, no matter if it's somebody's the top doctor at the best institution, they are a human, just like you are a human. And, you know, you never want anyone to be in that situation, but that person could be in those shoes however many years from there. So you can't think that this person has any more say over what is going to happen to you as a person just because they have these degrees. They have, you know, I, I think that was that was a, a part of our learning journey too, was just being intimidated, very intimidated at the beginning. And we had to get past that because it's, it's your life, you know, like you don't need to be shy. Like, where is that going to get you? Exactly. So. Did you ever have a, a black doctor doctor? Yes. So we ended up, I think my mom's first black doctor was her clinical trial um, physician out in Houston. And I will say that it was an amazing experience. Like not saying that it's a, you know, overarching comment that it's, if you have a black doctor, it's going yeah. to solve your problems. But it did. I could tell that my mom just felt she felt comfortable. She felt like the questions that she had um, weren't just automatically kind of dismissed. And like, it sounds so silly, but I remember there was one time where she was actually, um, she had complications with the clinical trials so she had to, you know, you had to take her to the ER and it was nothing too crazy, but she had to be in there, I think for 10 days. 
and any like probably more girls, but like, you know, women of color know like when you are out of your element without all your products, like, you know, you're like, I don't have my lotions. I don't have my creams, my, you know? And so I remember her being stuck in the hospital and she kept asking these nurses for lotion and like, all girls know there's a difference between like your thick, like good quality creams and stuff. And like, what's at the hotel? What's at the hospital? So these nurses kept getting her like this, you know, crappy lotion. Her skin was so dry, and, you know? And so her, her black doctor, she's a woman, she came in to check on her, you know? And I was like, I'm fine. I just need lotion. And she's like, I got you. <laughs> Writes this pres- prescription for some, you know, like actual thick quality lotion. It's just like little stuff like that, that is like, yeah, she wasn't going to die from not having the right lotion, but somebody that can actually be like, oh, I know what you mean. I have a similar <laughs> experience and how uncomfortable it is to be ashy and dry. <laughs> like, you know, so stuff like that, that is, it doesn't seem to be like the end of the world, but when you're going through so much, just feeling it, somebody can understand where you're coming from makes all the difference. And I don't think it sounds silly at all. Like I know you kind of prefaced it that way, but you're going through something so traumatic. Like the least we can do is try and make it as comfortable as possible for people who are going through this Mm -hmm. horrible situation. And so for someone to be like dry and uncomfortable and nurses are just giving them dollar store (laughs) is horrific to me. Right. Did you have a ridiculous request, uh, Kiara, at all? Um, or something that you're like, well, uh. <laughs> I am such a weirdo. You probably notice every time I record, I've got my big water. I can't drink water without a straw. And so I had to have a straw. <laughs> but that was an easy one for them to get me from the cafeteria. <laughs> so Tatiana, when did Chemodivas turn in from an Instagram? It seemed like it was your your mom was alive at the time when you guys started the Instagram and it was a way for you guys to share back and and um you know start on that journey. But was it was the inception of the Instagram always the thought of this is going to turn into a nonprofit or when did that happen? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I started the Instagram it was another instance when my mom was in the hospital. Um this was, you know, peak COVID, August 2020. And I couldn't get to her. You know, I was um, in Houston alone. She was in the hospital there. Um, But I was looking for just stories that were similar to her. You know, you go on Instagram and you see all these pages and they share all these amazing journeys and success stories or, you know, just kind of their informational pages. But I remember being like, well, I want to find someone that my mom can relate to or, you know, comes from a similar background that has a similar story, similar kind of cancer, really anything. And, you know, you're scrolling, you're scrolling, you're scrolling. And after a while, you're like, okay, I'm not really seeing anything. So I remember there was one page that they were accepting like requests or uh, submissions that you could put in for your own um, story to be shown. And I would like submit and I'll see it get posted. And then I'd be like, well, I'm not getting posted. I think somehow it came out to other people other women of color were trying to submit their stories and not getting posted. And I kind of was like, damn it, I'm going to make my own, <laughs> like I'm going to make my own Instagram, like forget it. I'm for just going to, yeah. And I was like, man, like I'm probably going to get like five followers. Not that I have that many now, but you know, it's just kind of like whatever, if, if, it, if it helps one person, it's worth it. And so I created the page. I started just sharing women's stories and even just information that I thought was important. Like I didn't know the definition of like 
so many words like I didn't even know what oncology was like <laughs> so I was like I'm just going to like yeah like share random pieces of information that my mom finds useful I find useful as a caregiver and then these women's stories um and so did that for a while did like funny videos with me and my mom just to kind of take her mind really it was for me to like take her mind off of treatment and stuff like you know I'm gonna teach her a TikTok dance and we'll post it on here mm -hmm. um so we did that and it was fun but then obviously she started kind of having a more difficult time and so then when she passed in March of 2021 it was very hard for me to kind of get back to the page um you know and I would try to do things but I kind of felt like you know I was still processing I'm still processing now so I took a break for a while um, but then when I decided that I wanted to come back is when I said, okay, I want to actually legitimize this and make this a, a nonprofit organization, um, one, to address the challenges that I saw, um, but two, also just to, I, I feel like, honor my mom still and, like, that moment of time. I know that a lot of people that we interacted with when she was alive through the page and said, you know, like, this page, like, on some of my harder days, it was just so nice to come and see you and your mom you know, enjoying each other and having fun and you being there for her. And I kind of felt like I didn't have a space in that world anymore that my mom had passed. I kind of was like, well, if she's not here, how do I relate to this experience? I don't have her to talk to about this stuff. Um, and then I had an amazing therapist who told me, you know, like your story is still valid, your experience is still valid. And it kind of made me think of a lot of the women who, tell me that, you know, during their cancer treatment, everyone is like, oh yeah, you're going through cancer right now. Oh, we're here for you. Oh, we understand. And then once they are done with treatment and they're considered a survivor, they feel kind of like, well, what's my space in this world? People don't really like look at me or think of me as going through stuff anymore, but I still am going through this. I have this experience and obviously I didn't go through cancer, but watching my mom go through it and being her caregiver, like, okay, she passed away. I'm no longer a caregiver but how do I use that experience to still help others? How do I kind of grow that impact and really take what I learned during that time to make a difference? Man, that's gotta be hard. I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. Is there any post in particular or piece of advice or support? Uh, of course, it seems like you've impacted so many people, women of color. Um, and I, I love all the different stories that that you share and, you know, highlighting everybody, but was there, um, like I said, support or advice that, that people really gravitated to, especially, especially you as a, a, a caregiver too, because I mean, we talk about it all the time on this podcast, but I, I, I think sometimes the caregivers are the afterthoughts as well. And of course, especially when there's a passing as well, it's, your job's not done then, you know? Yeah, I would probably say, well, I guess advice that I resonated the most with in just the whole situation is, is giving myself grace. I think I try to remind uh, women, everybody really going through kind of anything, but specifically cancer and our community, women of color going through cancer to give themselves grace throughout the process. I would tell my mom all the time, like during this time, you care about numero uno, like you are the most important person. Like, I know that we all, you know, want to be there for other people and be polite and stuff, but like, you're going through something that people will never understand. And even if, you know, 
person A has gone through cancer and they're telling person B, oh, I've gone through it too. Your situation didn't look like theirs. Everyone's is so different. So like similar to how I think about like my grief and mourning and even a lot of times I'll get very emotional like doing chemo with stuff because of course I just have this emotional connection to it. I just have to remember that like no matter what, I have to take care of myself first. And, you know, when people are going through treatment, that's the one thing I'm like, do what you need to do to get through your day, you know, whatever it may be, no matter what the doctors are telling you, no matter what the internet's telling you, your friends are telling you, it's really about like, you knowing yourself, your body, your mental capacity and doing what you need to do. Well, and as a patient, I can't like, that's the best advice I've gotten too. And I think it comes back as well to the conversation in the beginning of, of your mom, not being heard and having to Mm -hmm. care about herself to, to put herself Mm -hmm. out there for so many more doctors. Right. And so I think that's something that all of us can take away is, is put yourself first, you know, yourself best. So I think, I mean, you have such an incredible outlook on all of this. Um, and I, it's rare, honestly, to come across a non-patient who understands patient issues to the degree that you do. So it's, um, really a pleasure to be here, but I would love to talk to you a little bit, obviously for those listening, um, Justin and I are both white. Um, I would love to hear what we can do as allies to help those in the community, because I think I hear all these statistics of, you know, so much more likely to die and this, that, the other, and it's horrific. And all I want to do is help, but I don't even know where to start. That's a really good question. (laughs) I wish I had, I wish I had an overarching answer of like, what can you do? I really think probably listening is the first thing that comes to mind. I think A lot of the times when I'm talking about just how I felt throughout the process, how my mom communicated to me, how she felt, um, you know, I get that it's very difficult to hear, you know, especially a lot of times, like, I feel bad sometimes seeing, like, posting a statistic of, like, Black people have gone through this and white people have gone through this. And like, I don't want people to feel like it's like a us versus them. Like, yeah. that's not it at all. What it really is, is understanding that the more that we recognize the differences of the challenges that people go through and how nuanced every single experience is, the more that healthcare will be better for us all. Mm. So it's less about kind of saying, well, you know, that issue doesn't affect me. It affects us all. So making sure that, you know, when people are talking or actually listening, when, you know, doctors are even to you personally, or, you know, somebody is telling you, recounting a story, I guess kind of like validating them and saying it's not in your head. Because I think really a word that I cling on to, which I don't even know if I use this word correctly, but microaggressions, like, I think a lot of the times when I would sit there and, um, appointments with my mom and hear the way that like doctors would ask certain questions or answer her questions in a way where you're like, I can't put my finger on it, but that doesn't feel right. Or it doesn't feel like they're actually listening to your paying attention mm-hmm. and being able to say like, yeah, mom, that, that, that was weird. Right. How that person said that, or, you know, like, that's not like, you're not crazy, I guess. I think it's the listening, the validating and making sure that like people know that like you are you care. It's a safe space to have that conversation with you. And though it, it's 
uncomfortable for everybody to talk about this stuff, like it's important because not talking about it isn't going to solve the issue. It's just going to make the disparity worse. Absolutely. And besides chemo divas, do you have any recommendations of where to hear more stories of, of people with color experiencing cancer, experiencing healthcare on the whole? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, I know that there are a lot of great organizations that do a lot um, in regards to supporting. I know a big one, Survivors Nest is the one organization um, that's actually based in Atlanta that helps my mom a lot during her her um, treatment. And they help, I think they help all women, I think mainly women with breast cancer, but in Atlanta, I know that was a really strong community. Um, And there's just a lot of resources that I have on my site, but as far as like just stories, that's one thing that I haven't necessarily seen as much of. And I think why I initially clung to that um, was because my mom's whole kind of thought process was like, this is the test for my testimony. I'm going to share my story. I can't wait to be up on the pulpit and inspire other people. And I, I really thought about how much strength and like dignity there is in being able to take something that was so hard and difficult for someone and to share it with others to inspire people. Like, I think there's so much power in being able to say, hey, this happened to me and I'm not ashamed. I'm going to share this with other people so that they one, know that they're not alone, but they also um, have me as an inspiration. Like they can look at me and say, hey, I'm in that person's shoes right now. They got through it, I can too. Um, so, and also sharing stories is like, I don't know. I, like, I was like, it doesn't cost me money <laughs> to yeah, exactly. share people's story, like share kindness, share inspiration. Um, so that's, that's something. And my mom always just like, I could write a book. I've had so much going on in my life. I could write a book. <laughs> and like, I'm always like, oh, she never got to write her book. But mm. like, hopefully what I can do is make people feel like their stories are important. And a lot of the times when I am reaching out to women and saying, hey, you know, because I'm just like creepily on Instagram, like, oh, this person looks interesting. Hi, do you want to share? And, you know, some women are just like, oh my gosh, it's me. And I'm like, yes, like you are amazing. Like, I think people don't realize how inspirational their stories are um, until it's like affirmed and validated outside of them, which it shouldn't be that way. But if I have to be that person, I'll be that person and tell you, you are amazing. Like you should have a spotlight on you you know everybody deserves a little bit of you know a pat on the back for no doubt getting through hard stuff so no doubt so Tatiana we're wrapping up the conversation and of course I want to point people to where they can learn more about your organization but first I can't help but notice your necklace I feel like you always wear it you always wear it in pictures um was that a gift or when did you It was a gift from a friend a few months after my mom passed. So it's, it has her name on it, her first name, which I always tell the story because there's been a couple of times where I'll be out and about and someone will be like, like one, like the Walmart greeter was like, my sister's name is Paulette. And I was like, how, what, like, what kind of, how does this man know that my mom's name is like, um, I wear her name around my neck every day. (laughs) And then I'm always surprised when someone's just like, is your name Paulette? Like, what? Like, how do you know? So I have a little piece of her with me everywhere mm. I go. That's so cool. Thank well, you. Tatiana, tell us where can people find out more about Chemo Divas and any upcoming events or news or anything that you would like to share? Feel free, floor's all yours. 
Absolutely. So you can go to our website, chemodivas with an S.org, or you can follow us on Instagram at chemodivas. Um, so we had our 5K back in December. It's annual, it aligns with my mom's birthday. So we won't have another one until December 2023. Um, but a few things that we are doing, a big part of our kind of nonprofit. Um, experience is giving grants, Chemo Diva grants to women of color who need financial support. And um, it's not just specifically medical support, it's medical, non-medical expenses, whatever they need it for. Um, so we're raising money for that. Um, and so far we've been able to grant $6,000. So very proud of that, hoping to continue to grow um, that through the new year. Um, and then, yeah, I guess no like actual events until December. I think right now I'm still in very like new nonprofit mode of just like taking it all in. I'm excited to just like talk to other nonprofits and see what they're doing and have collaborations such as this one. But um, any events that we do have, you'll see on our Instagram page or our website. So, and you can subscribe to our email um, newsletter. I swear we won't spam you. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah. And then if women want to share their stories as well, either you can find the links on our actual Instagram page or our website. If you have resource recommendations, we have, I think over 50 resources right now that are on our website of publications, as far as like podcasts, like this one, um, books, websites, um, support groups, financial resources, educational resources, all kinds of stuff on our websites. Um, that people can access. And if you have a recommendation that you want to recommend, you can also submit it and we'll work on getting it on the page. We definitely want it to feel like a community fueled, you know, input type of process so that it's kind of like chemo divas approved. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. Love the website. Very well laid out, uh, easy to follow along and find a bunch of different things. So uh, we always like to end the conversation. What does great support look like for you? You have given us so many pieces to chew on already around that exact same topic. So I'll throw it back at you. Feel free to hammer home something you've already said or something else comes to mind with that question. Feel free to take it. Yes, great support. I honestly think it's just kind of having someone on your heart. I don't know if that sounds too (laughs) fluffy. I like this now. Yeah, I think that one thing, one of the many things I learned over the past couple of years is just life stuff was that everybody's role in your life is different. So you're going to have the friends that they call and check in on you all the time. And then you're going to have the friends that maybe you don't hear from them all the time, but you know, when you do, you know, it's like you pick up like right where you left off and you have friends that will, you know, just send you a card in the mail and maybe you don't chat all the time or someone who is like, you know what, I'm, I'm at the store. I'm going to pick up, you know, this chocolate that this person likes. I think I've just realized that everybody's role is different and appreciating the differences in those roles and how that kind of fits into this beautiful picture of what your community looks like. If everyone did the same thing, you know, it wouldn't be a community. So everyone has a diverse experience, a diverse role and the way that they're able to kind of contribute to your life in their own way. And that's what makes it beautiful. Very well said. Very, very well said. Pleasure. So much fun talking to you. Tatiana Tate, Chemo Divas, chemodivas.org, Chemo Divas on Instagram. Tatiana, what a what a blast having this conversation. This was amazing. Thank you guys so much. It was awesome. <laughs>